Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Mona Golubek is bringing her one-woman show, The Pianist of Williston Lane, which was adapted and directed by Hershey Felder to Theater Works in Mountain View from January 15th through February 16, 2020. Telling and acting the story of her mother, a piano prodigy who escaped from Austria to England in 1938 on the Kinder Transport and the years afterward as a refugee, Mona Golubek weaves the narrative with performances of the music that kept her mother alive, both as listener and performer. I sat down with Mona Golubek in 2013 when the pianist of Williston Lane which is based on her book, The Children of Williston Lane, played at Berkeley Rep in one of its early performances. Mona Golubek, this is the story of your mother, Lisa Yura, and her life during World War II, first going from Austria to England via the Kindertransport and later becoming a concert pianist, and you're a concert pianist. As you were growing up, you were taking piano lessons, and I understand that your mother would interrupt the piano lessons to give these little tidbits about her life. Absolutely. The piano lessons were not only lessons about music and how to play the piano, but they really were lessons about life, her life. And in between the Chopin Nocturnes and the Beethoven Sonatas, she would fit in these little threads of the years of her growing up, a coming of age, during the Blitz, during World War II, when she was a teenager a Jewish refugee living at a hostel on a street called Wilsden Lane in the northern part of London, where she lived with 30 other refugees. Before you were taking the lessons, what exactly did you know about your mom's life? Well, I began taking lessons with my mother when I was five years old, so I didn't know too much before that. <laughs> so really, all the, all the stories came in the piano lessons and uh, all through my growing up years. And particularly these these pieces of music like the Claire de Lune of Debussy or the Greek Piano Concerto, they became the folklore. They became the stories behind the stories. I learned that she thought of the Claire de Lune when she saw the moonlight coming through the windmills when she escaped on the Kindertransport crossing into Holland. I learned that the Greek Piano Concerto was whistled by the boys and the girls in the streets of London when they would see each other. It became their theme, the theme of the refugees. As you were playing, you knew she was a concert pianist. My mother's career was cut short at the end of the war and being a refugee and being poor and all the terrible losses that so many people suffered. I think really in a way my beloved sister and I came along to fulfill the dream that was cut short. And so we went on to become the concert pianists. Was there any pressure to do that, or did it just kind of happen organically for both you and your sister? It really happened organically. I mean, certainly as a prodigy growing up, you do feel pressure. That's always there. But we wanted to make something of our lives and be worthy of the losses and 
we loved our parents so deeply. So we felt that mission. How long did it take before all the stories began to coalesce into what you realized was a fascinating biography of your own mother? I mean, even before you thought about writing it. I knew from the very beginning that this was an amazing story. When I began the journey nearly 25 years ago, or 20 years ago, and I always thought that if I could get this book published, if I could get this story told, I would have the opportunity to inspire people through a very powerful message of holding on to something in the darkest of times. Mona Golubek, let's talk a little about that. So you're, you're, you were a concert pianist. You began playing professionally, what, 14, was it? Well, I was a child prodigy myself growing up, but I, I really think that my concertizing days really began in my 20s when I came under management and started to extensively go across America uh, with Columbia Artist Tours and a soloist with different orchestras. And then I think somewhere along the, the way, I realized how exhausting it was and how difficult that career was. And I saw that I had other passions and talents, storytelling. Uh, I was very interested in multimedia. Uh, how could I take whatever gifts I had and whatever understandings of the arts that I had and coalesce it in another way? So I built this radio syndication and I built a uh, uh, a way of telling stories when I went out on stage. And then ultimately I began my mother's story. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do. What role did your late sister Renee have in this? She was my best friend, my great champion. She believed in my dream. And she was a great editor and a great champion of how to present it theatrically, such that when the book finally got sold, and I started to do book tours, she really guided me on how to walk out on stage and tell the story at the piano. When you began doing the book tours, were you performing with the book from the beginning? Yes. I think that everyone saw it as a very unique way of bringing a book into the public. So they made sure to have a little piano wherever I went, even in bookstores. It was quite, quite amusing. And then the book came out. And you decided at that point that you would create the CD, The Children of Williston Lane, correct? Well, my path crossed with a gentleman by the name of Lowell Milken, the chairman of the Milken Family Educational Foundation. And I knew that I had met a very important person who could potentially change the course of my life and this project. He fell in love with the book, and he stepped up to the plate to fund educational resources to teach the book. And in the process, we made the CD recording, and he funded that. So the CD came out, and you were doing the program, uh, your radio show, on several classical music stations around the country, and occasionally performing as well. At what point and under what circumstances did you think about going to Hershey Felder and kind of auditioning for him to see if you could actually turn it into a play? It really was kind of serendipitous, as they say. I was brought to see his show at the Geffen Playhouse, a Beethoven show. I was so stunned by it. It was so amazing. I couldn't believe that this one individual could sit at the piano and act all these different characters and tell the story from the piano. So I called him up and I asked if I could talk with him. He's a most generous soul to colleagues, and he invited me to come to the Geffen Playhouse so I did a little mini version for him, and he loved it and was very moved by it. He has a very deep sensibility to the Holocaust, and he's also the son of refugees. So he said, I'd like to have a chance at trying to produce you. 
And what happened next? I mean, I know that you got an acting coach and you said in an interview that the experience was both exhilarating and exasperating. <laughs> well, I followed him everywhere. I went to Tucson and Chicago and Paris. That was the best part. And we would work in between his performances on the script and adapting it to the stage. It's an exhausting process. Plus, I was not trained ever as an actress. So I was coming into an art form that I was needing to understand. I was bringing my skills as a storyteller and hopefully my artistry as a musician, which of course can spill over. But there was an extraordinary world for me to learn about. And I enrolled in acting class. It was pretty hilarious. I was probably one of the oldest people in the class. And um, it was just magnificent. I worked with a, a coach by the name of Howard Fine, who himself is the son of refugees, considered one of the most premier acting coaches in Los Angeles. I learned extraordinary things. Being there and working with him began to understand the whole process much better. But it's very challenging to learn all this. What was the hardest part of the process, you think? Learning how to live on stage, spontaneous life, learning how to make a story live each time you walk out, learning how to give a piece of your heart. That part maybe wasn't so difficult because I do think I walk a little bit with my heart outside my, my, my chest. And certainly in terms of this story, I have, I'm very much on fire to tell it. But it was really learning how you create an alive art form. And it was also learning how to speak and play the piano at the same time. These were very difficult challenges. Playing the piano, doing two things at once. That yes. must be really, really hard, particularly when you're not in a position to screw up your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's one particular section where I pretend to be on a sewing machine and then I'm playing a Bach partita and I'm talking about how fabulous it is to be a young person in London and the same age as uh, Princess Elizabeth. That was so difficult. It took me months to learn how to do that. Mona Golubek, what made you decide that the Greg concerto would be the centerpiece, the tie that binds the entire show together? Well, it was my mother's dream to make her debut. So it was natural for us to use that concerto. So you go on stage and you're performing, but other stuff is going on as well. Was that Hershey Felder putting up the images or was that the two of you working together? <clears throat> no, Hershey Felder is um, really quite brilliant in many of his uh, stagings and he's really quite a Renaissance man. He's not only a, an actor, pianist, writer, but he conceives all of his projects. And he has a great, great understanding of the theater, lighting and whatnot. This was his concept of the screens, the um, empty frames by which to project through a world lost. And it was inspired by the part of the play that it, where Lisa and her boyfriend go to the National Gallery of Art, and there's only one painting, a Rembrandt because all the other paintings have been stored away for safekeeping. So that inspired him to create these empty, beautiful frames from a museum. And how was it for you learning to perform different people, you know, and, and actually conversations briefly? That was probably one of the most challenging parts of the whole production, to learn how to change your voices, to learn how to change your posture, 
to learn how to um, find the internal life of these people. But now I just eat it up and I <laughs> love it. <laughs> and the accents? That's been very challenging for me. The British accent has particularly been tough for me. The German accent seems to come more easily. It's funny, but I keep working at it. Mona Golubek, in terms of the play itself, what did you want to put in that there just wasn't time for? Was there anything? I honestly believe we got the salient points. I honestly believe we hit the major reasons why I am on fire to tell this story. The goodbye scene, my mother's incredible tenacity to keep going forward. We hit those marks. How she would play the Greek piano concerto when the bombs came down. I'm particularly proud of a scene that I wrote, which references D-Day and the soldiers that gave their lives so that all of us could walk in freedom. That uh, set against the Rachmaninoff prelude, I'm very proud of. There's a sequence where she sneaks away from the hostel. Uh, well, she sneaks away from the sewing factory, winds up in the hostel. How did you find out about that? Because that's not quite part of the music, or was it? Oh, well, she would tell me these stories. And then I also interviewed a number of the refugees. I found them. After I decided to write the book, after I was engaged to play the Greek piano concerto with the Seattle Symphony, I decided to uh, tell her story. So I sought these people out. All these threads came from the various interviews. There's a boy that she really likes, and he goes into the RAF. But you don't tell what happened to him. What did happen to him? He's actually a character in the book based on two young men that were in love with my mother. We changed his name to protect his identity. He's no longer alive. Marvelous person that I found and interviewed at length. I think he became very embittered from the war and the losses. And he was a sort of very Germanic. I never really found out the true story as to what happened between my mother and him. I heard that he broke her heart. I heard she broke his heart. I heard from him that he couldn't take how much she was a flirt. I heard from her that she couldn't take how uh, authoritative he was and very Germanic. Who knows the truth? I don't know. Mona Golubek, the kinder transport where your mother got out of Austria and got back to Britain, it's pretty much forgotten. Why do you think that was? This begs the question about the extent of what is taught in the 21st century. Holocaust education itself is not even mandatory except in about seven states in America and great parts of the world. Nobody really even knows about it. I think it's the testament to the Jewish people that ever since the Holocaust, their fire has been extraordinary to tell the story and all the all of the educational resources and the museums that have been erected to never forget the cry, never forget. As far as the kinder transport goes, well, it was just as one small segment. What was it exactly? It was a rescue operation in collaboration with British Jews and British Christians that pressured their government after a clarion call went out over the BBC radio following Kristallnacht one of the worst nights to sweep across Europe for the Jewish people. And these extraordinary British Christians opened their hearts and souls to these Jewish children whose lives would have been lost. 
without they pressured the government and they passed a a law that didn't make it necessary for paperwork to be in place for these they could come immediately so it was a 6 month rescue operation that the nazis for some reason allowed 10,000 Jewish children to come out on these trains and to get a ticket was the most pressuring possible thing and desperate attempt on the part of parents it's like almost like charlie and the chocolate factory if you get your gold ticket and your mother got it but her two sisters did not right exactly and it was a desperate situation of a family to decide who were they going to give the ticket to i'm sure many families faced that many families did not want to part with their children we heard stories of mothers and fathers in the last moment yanking their children from the train well the question is you don't know the future and so when you're in 1938 Vienna, and you're sending your child away, there's no way of knowing what is going to happen. Maybe it'll smooth over. Maybe you'll be fine. Maybe the family can go somewhere else. Maybe they could stay. Well, any parent that has to choose to send a child away, it's just a complete heartbreak. And you're absolutely right. Maybe they were wondering, would the, would the war come to England? Would Hitler invade there? I mean, would anti-Semitism erupt there? Would there be ordinances? So I can't even imagine what these families must have felt. And of course, for your mother, who was a young teenager at the time, she's suddenly going on a train, and she's always been just, you know, coddled prodigy, and suddenly she's being told, you're 14 years old, you have to work. I think it was the most extraordinary psychic wound that happened to my mother, getting on that train, that train speeding away from everything that she loved from the Vienna that she adored and the family that she was passionate about. And then, yes, to find her way. And she certainly let me know all those years she was working in a factory and sewing. And any time I would complain as a young kid, she'd say, well, would you like to be in a factory working on a sewing machine? So their upbringing was extraordinary, these, these refugees, everyone having to get a job. Uh, it's so moving to me to imagine. When she was at the hostel, uh, she found this old piano and began playing. You dramatize it as she's playing, and suddenly people come out of the woodwork and go, what the heck is going on? Is, is that what really happened? Well, that's what I heard from the different people. When Whether it happened actually in one go that way, I'm not sure. I know she did enter. I know she went to the piano over a series of times, and refugees would come out, and they were stunned by the music. In a theatrical production, of course, you gather it all together and you make that beautiful moment because, remember, ultimately, what is theater? It's to entertain and hopefully to to challenge people in a very artistic way. And to create empathy. Yes, right. Mona Golubek, where do you think we are today in terms of what was going on then? I mean, there are still Nazi laws on the books about art. Degenerate art. <laughs> right. It's just its just unfathomable to think what has taken place in the last set of weeks and the discovery of all that art that was uh, squared away by that rather ill individual there. It's a marvelous question that you're asking. I don't have the answer. I have great hope in the young people, and especially because of the Internet and Twitter and all the social media instruments that we have now that allow young people to really communicate with each other and stand up against man's inhumanity to man. And I believe that those instruments 
as intruding as they are, and sometimes as annoying as they are, will better mankind, and that we will we will fight injustice as a result. I mean, even a marvelous young girl that stood up against uh, for education in Afghanistan, who was shot. What a what a hero heroine this young girl is. These are the heroes that we are going to see emerge more and more, and they're going to speak out. And I really believe that we will see a better world. And ultimately, even all the factions and all the terrible things that are going on, terrorism and and increasing anti-Semitism and bigotry and bullying, all of these things are being brought to the forefront and addressed. And good, ultimately, I think, will... uh, will triumph. Can you talk a little about your foundation, Hold On to Your Music? I'm very proud of it. We formed it in order to be able to help bring my mother's story to young people across America. The book has now been read in 21 states. Close to 200,000 units have been released through our nonprofit to help educators buy it at cost, at at a minimal cost, or we gift it. We do large citywide reads across America for thousands of students where I come and perform. And the purpose really is to uh, bring this message of inspiration. No matter what happens in the darkest of times, if you've got something to hold on to, you're going to make it through. And to keep educating young people about the issues of the Holocaust and intolerance and bigotry. And I think we've found an unusual way through this theatrical production to do that because it's a personal story of young people. One of our most favorite citywide reads was a year ago in Montgomery, Alabama, where many thousands of mostly African-American students of the 21st century cheered the story of a Jewish teenager in World War II. So we know we have a very universal story that begs to be told. Mona Golubek, I'd like to get back a little to the music is there any point where you feeling like I need to put my mother specifically into my playing? Does that ever come up? I don't think about trying to sound like her. and I don't think I'll ever be able to do a legato or a phrase like her. I'll never know the pains she had. But she comes to me all the time. I try to inhabit her charm and her grace and her Viennese flirtations on the stage. I hope I'm achieving somewhat of that. That's what I try to do. And your dad, what was his story? He was the most heroic, beautiful soul, French resistance officer, highly decorated Jewish resistance officer in the French resistance, receiving the Croix de Guerre from General Charles de Gaulle, born in Poland, beautiful family in the Bialystok region, sent out to study in Montpellier, France, lied about his age when the war broke out, and joined the resistance, fighting Uh, imprisoned twice in German prison camps, escaped, was the captain of an elite motorcycle brigade uh, for several years during the war, would regale us with the stories. And one of my great regrets is that I never taped my father. He died in the 1970s. And your mother passed away in 1997. How far along had children gotten at that point? The book was published five years later, so she never saw the book or the performance. Did you talk to her beforehand about what you were doing then about it? Yes, I did. And she was, uh, I think, had confused feelings. I think anytime anybody's being interviewed for something, it poses lots of complex questions internally. 
maybe she, I think she was touched, but I also think she probably maybe felt a bit awkward seeing her life brought to the forefront that way. Wherever she is, though, now, I hope that she's moved by what I've tried to do through her story. In 1999, you and your sister created a concert and invited all the surviving kinder transport kids, who are now, of course, older people. What was that like? Well, actually, we were invited to come to London. It was the 60th reunion of the kinder transport, and we performed there, and it was one of the most beautiful things that I will always cherish, that we had the opportunity to go back and tell through our music how much we loved all of them. And more importantly, to thank the British people for saving the lives of these Jewish children. I'm alive today because of their generosity. And America pretty much did nothing. Well, I have to say, this has been one of the most unique interviews I have ever had. And I am very moved by the, the research and the questions you've posed to me and by the statement you made just now, because that is the question all of us ask. How devastating to think that America and the powers that be knew of the camps, did nothing. How they could have bombed the train tracks. It is a question that is breaks the heart. Did you ever ask anybody? I mean, in your research, did, did that ever come across? Did you ever try to figure it out? Because still today, when you hear about the ship that was turned away, yes, I know that there was anti-Semitism in this country, but still, it, it's just mind-boggling. Totally. It's unfathomable. I think we talk about it, all of us, but there are nobody seems to have answers. Nobody seems to provide the answers. But isn't that the way always of government, that we never get the answers? So many things. The tragedies continue. How many young people have lost their lives now, currently today, around the world, in service of America in various places, and their parents are begging the questions to know why, and they're not being given answers. Top secret, CIA, whatever it is, we don't provide the answers. And we are the people. We're the ones out there. So it's a very, very perplexing question to, to think about. Mona Golubek, what is concert for Mona? Actually, it was called Concerto for Mona. It was a film that I did many years ago with Zubin Mehta. And it um, was on PBS, and it presented the world premiere of a concerto that was written for me by William Kraft, um, a very modern piece of music that I performed and uh, had an exhilarating experience. And it was my first um, time on PBS. And now we are starting to film with Oscar-nominated uh, director Josh Aronson, a documentary that will follow me. We, we began here in Berkeley at the Berkeley Repertory Theater, and it's going to follow me around the country in these various citywide reads that I do, where we will uh, really examine these critical issues facing young people today as they experience my show. What do they know about the Holocaust? What do they think about it? What are the issues facing racism and intolerance and anti-Semitism? And we hope that it'll be an interesting film. Mona Golubek, you also uh, continue the show, The Romantic Hours, on various stations. Let me ask you, what's happening with classical music? It seems to be vanishing. Is it just because it's old white men? Well, that seems to be the, uh, the, the thoughts out there, that when you look at the audiences, it's very much graying. 
But once again, I believe there are the champions out there and they're amazing, amazing individuals who are, you know, we have Michael Tilson Thomas here in San Francisco. We've got uh, Dudamel in Los Angeles, marvelous conductors and programs out there to bring young people. I myself am partnered with the Music Center in Los Angeles to bring my show to 10,000 students next year in a large citywide read. I just think we all have to continue the good fight and make sure that we have arts education in the school systems. That's the big stone that we have here. That's the problem. And that comes, of course, back to funding and yes. what the United States could be doing but isn't. Right. right. We should fund less less wars and more arts education. Absolutely. Uh, your show, The Romantic Hours, can people find that online? It's online in the various radio stations that stream it. But we are rebuilding our website and hope to go online as a service, like so many other, of course, uh, projects out there. I've been so overwhelmed with the pianist of Wilsden Lane that I haven't been able to put as much attention to that. But I hope to do so in 2014. And for people who don't know, what is Wilsden Lane? It's a street in the northern part of London in an area called Wilsden Green. It's right near Riffle Road. It was at one time a pocket of quite a Jewish population in London. But of course, like so many areas now, has has changed. Did you go back to London and visit Williston Lane? And did you go back to Austria and Vienna and see where your mother grew up? I went back, yes. And I met Hans the blind boy from the uh, hostel and he took me down Williston Lane. And I've been back to Vienna a number of times. It's one of my favorite cities of the world. I went to where my mother grew up. I walked and saw the apartment. I walked the entire area. What's anti-Semitism like there now? Oh, I'm sure it's very seething and underneath. And there are great concerns that anti-Semitism is rising again in Europe. We're hearing of horrible, isolated pockets of brawls and uh, terrible things. Again, it will only be through education and constant sharing and speaking from the heart that these things are intolerable, intolerable and not to be permitted. Mona Golubek, this is playing through January 4th at Berkeley Rep. Are you taking it elsewhere? I understand through Mr. Felder that we're receiving offers from all over the country, so I'm very excited about that. My ultimate hope is that one day maybe I'll bring it to New York and then maybe to the London Theater. You've been listening to an interview with Mona Golubek whose piece, The Pianist of Williston Lane, is playing through January 4th at Berkeley Rep. Uh, Children of Williston Lane is both a book and a CD, and I believe there's a video series as well. Is that correct? We have teaching materials on our website, holdontoyourmusic.org, where teachers can access and watch how the book is taught. You've been listening to a 2013 interview with Mona Golubek about her one-woman show, The Pianist of Williston Lane, adapted and directed by Hershey Felder, which has returned to the Bay Area at TheaterWorks in Mountain View through February 16th. For more information, you can go to theaterworks.org. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.